Now, there was a really wonderful series of uh, videotapes called Civilization by Sir Kenneth Graham, the BBC put out. And he's standing and talking to the camera. Behind him is this huge cathedral. And he said, now in the 20th century, we look at this. It was one of these fabulous medieval cathedrals. He said, now, in the 20th century, we look at that. And we say that is a product of skill in, in stone, building in stone. It's architectural design. It's an artistic sense. It, of course, is some kind of religious faith, some kind of aspiration. And an idea of wanting to, to have... a and fitting in with the latter one, the idea of a, of a communication w with, with God. He said, but in the Middle Ages, people were in shock to hear someone say that, to make a list like that, because they saw it as all just coming out of one thing, that the one thing had many aspects to it, whereas we act like take the many and put it together and you get a one. So it shows a really fragmented view of life that you don't see uh, that all this diversity is a manifestation of the unity. We think, no, 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 put it all together and you have the one thing. Rather than from the one thing, it's all come out. And as Vivekananda said, the problem you have in looking at everything is that in the East, let's be honest, in India, <laughs> uh, they know that matter has come out of consciousness. And the West, they think consciousness has come out of matter. So they're all trying to figure out at what point does intelligence manifest. See, what happened? I remember reading a really stupid article. See, it's what's interesting. You talk about science, you see. It's basically verifiable. And then they spend these fables as goofy as any creative as any as any creation fable that any primitive tribe can come up with, and this one was that there was a monkey sitting in a tree that had a brain about that big, and it had a brain hemorrhage, but instead of it killing the monkey, it did something so the brain grew, and therefore the monkey began to develop intelligence now how's that? I mean, can you think of any fable? You know, in any ancient tradition, that is more that is sillier than that, and any more baseless than that. But this is the whole thing. So they can't ever understand what each other's talking about. Kipling is 100% right. You know, east is east, west is west, and the two don't meet. They go by each other. And there is an attempt to so-called reconcile or unify and so on, and it doesn't work. In fact, the only uh, frame of reference in which that works is is the Western frame of reference. It doesn't work. Because in the East, they don't care. See? It doesn't bother. They're adults. Therefore, okay, you see it one way, I see it another. Fine. I mean, so what? You know I mean, no one would dream of saying, look at those plants, they're all supposed to be the same species, they don't all look alike, something is wrong. But, of course, you could imagine some lunatic in the West saying, 
I've come up with seeds, you know. I've genetically engineered seeds so that every plant will look exactly alike and there'll be clones of each other. And for some weird reason, we're utterly impressed with that, you know. We think, what a wonderful idea. It's a hideous idea. It's a hideous idea. So uh, the the problem is that uh, difference doesn't bother people in the East because they see the unity. And there's this the idea in the West, if we can erase the difference, then we will have attained unity as if unity is something to be attained. Exactly backwards. I mean, they really, do, they really don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, it, it just shows the complete hopelessness of the situation that until the, the psyche of the individual completely switches gears, None of it is going to have any is going to have any relevance. So, okay. What time is it? All right. We want to we want to go through a few points that Vivekananda has put in his book on Raja Yoga because they're not exactly what's going to come up in the sutras. So that when we consider the sutras. It's not. I, I would absolutely not be saying any of this, and yet there's such good ideas that uh, that we really should look at it. Okay. All the ortho, you see, we have six so-called orthodox systems of philosophy within India, Hinduism, but they're called darshanas, seeings, viewings, because that's all they are. They're view. They're not the truth. Someone asked Shankaracharya one time, what is truth? Sat- satya. And which can also be uh, translated reality. And he said, there's no such thing as satya. There's only sat. The true, the real. In other words, the idea that a verbal formulation can be the truth is absurd. The idea that the way I see it is the truth. And therefore, if you don't see it that way, you don't know the truth. Buddha talked about this. He said one of the most destructive things that the human being clings to is views. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because obviously in the sutras, he is giving an idea. He's giving views. He's giving, you know, we have the four truths, the four Aryan truths, despite the desire to use the word noble, the eightfold Aryan path, you know, the path of the Aryas. And they're very, one, two, three, four, five. And yet, even that he's saying, ultimately, we have to understand, just as Krishna says in the Gita, you have to understand, eventually, scriptures don't mean anything. So Buddha is saying that even his teachings, ultimately, don't mean anything. And I think how hard that is to give up. I mean, people have, first of all, just little pet concepts that they just... How will they let go of it? And and th- this is this is really really problematical, because see the very word philosophy means love of wisdom, and they think wisdom is put down in a page. So ultimately, it isn't love of wisdom; it's love and of expression of wisdom, and then the expression, like a symbol, is substituted for the reality. So we're in such trouble. But they don't mean that in India. 
because a real Sanatna Dharmi believes in the truth of all six systems. But it's just, they deal with six types of psychology, six different ways of, uh, of just basically, again, seeing things. So no one says, oh, you'll find it in India. Oh, I'm a Nyaya. They're being, among the Bengalis, the tantrics tend to be Nyaya philosophy. Oh, I'm Nyaya philosophy. I'm not uh, Purvamansa or Uttaravamansa. But this is not genuine at all because a real Sanatna Dharmi studies all six views to get a comprehensive view and then understands, but beyond it all, there's what's really going on. And therefore, it's to lead to it. So, what's really important that Vivekananda points out, he says, all the orthodox systems of Indian philosophy have one goal in view, the liberation of the individual through, and what's important, perfection. Not, I placated the gods. I, gave, I built a temple. I gave so much money. I did all these good deeds. And therefore, I've got a free pass out of jail. I've worked off my time. And so I manage. Or for, I've got time off for good behavior. But rather, the idea is right, right here, evolution. In other words, once the individual has evolved enough, then freedom is automatic. Just as, as we grow from infancy, we go into childhood, adolescence, finally we're adults. And the faculties and capacities an adult has, the child can't conceive of. And could have no idea about. And yet, they come and they grow in the individual and they manifest. And to our amazement, if we're very self-observing, we find that our, our mind is changing, our way of seeing things is changing, and it has had nothing to do with anything we've read or heard or social currents at all, but it's because of actual growth. And this is what any true philosophy leads toward. Not eternal reward in the heavens, you see, with these, with these deities. So he says, in the second place, they not only say so, but show the way to everyone. Explain their methods that all can follow in their steps. And this is perhaps the thing that, it's interesting. It's one of the things that actually seems to even interest people the least, you see. Like if you spin some high-blown theory of uh, something that people can attain, people will just fall in love with the vision and the idea. But they couldn't care less that you don't tell them how to get there. You see? Like people say, oh, have you read the interior castle of St. Teresa of Avila? Oh, what a book, you know. It discusses the seven levels of consciousness. and da, 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 da. There's only one catch. She doesn't tell you how to get to any of the levels. She describes, you don't want to be like it. Be like you go to a bunch of starving people. You start reading them a cookbook, you know. Or you start describing food to them. And, of course, they'll listen like, yes, yes, yes. And then, well, okay, goodbye. That's it, you see. So, same with John of the Cross, you see, who was one of her associates. There's all this mystical stuff and all this mystical poetry. 
but how to do even the simplest thing. Not a word in all of the books. See? Isn't that amazing? And what's interesting is people have been reading these books for centuries saying, isn't that brilliant? Isn't that clever? <gasps> isn't that wonderful? Oh, how profound. And there's not one single worthwhile practical thing. I had a, a, a Carmelite nun write to me who was in her 70s. And she'd become a nun when she was in her early 20s. So she had been a nun for over 50 years. And she wrote and said to me, uh, do you have any instructions on interior life and meditation? I've been a nun for over 50 years. I think it's about time I started to do something. Can you imagine? And yet there's all this idealization. They even use the term Carmelite spirituality. And yet here they don't have the simplest idea about how, how to turn in. So you find this with everything. You see, it's very great. Oh, so-and-so went out in the woods and God talked to him. And look, here he's got a book. You know, this is God's word to you. But how come they can't tell you how to talk with God? How come they can't tell you how to communicate with God? They even tell you, do this and God won't like it. Do this and God will like it. But you never even get to hear from God as to whether he does or don't like it. You believe what they say until you until you die, and no one ever says, "Hey, wait a minute, you know, if God can talk with you, why can't God talk with me?" You see, I had a friend that was really worrying a lot about her granddaughter because the uh, granddaughter's, you know, uh, parents were some kind of fundamentalist, and the little girl was really intelligent. She was only about five. And she was really upset. And she said, Grandma, we go to Sunday school and they tell us to kneel down and close our eyes and talk to God. And I talk to God, but God doesn't talk back. And the little girl was really upset. And when you think of it, what complete rationality. Here's a child whose brain isn't even very developed and she can figure out then there should be a communication between you and God. So it's amazing to see how the world uh, has run on and has run on for thousands of years uh, being utterly content with not having a clue. Of course, if you have a clue, then you've got to do something about it. So it's interesting, you see, as, as, as Vivekananda is saying, the wonder is that the sages, what is really um, incredible is that these sages said, let's find out what's, what's the stuff. Let's find out. And they intuited the way. It's really an important, uh, important thing to know. Like Brahma did, how to create the world. Nobody taught him how to create the world. He intuited how to create the world. And so these great sages engaged in all of these practices to attain these states. And I mean, I, I, re, I was really fortunate when I was in Rishikesh. Uh, it was amazing to be in on a session that was just like used to take place thousands of years ago in India. 
yogis getting together and saying, now, when this is done, this is the reaction I get. What do you get? Another one saying, yes, I do it, but I found that not only when you do that, if when you do that, you do it in this way, you get a whole other reaction. I mean, I actually was lucky enough that it, I mean, it, it rarely goes on anymore. But it was interesting there at Shivananasham to be in on things where people sat and compared notes. And this is how yoga was ultimately formulated. You had a lot of people, not one or two divinely favored people who used to meet. Like they used to meet near Lucknow, south of Lucknow, there's a forest named Naimish, Naimish Ranya. And there used to be annual gatherings there of these, of, of these yogis. And literally, they, they worked it all out. Just the way mathematicians can uh, trade knowledge. Just as the way uh, chemists, people working in chemistry or physics can trade knowledge. And they worked it and they perfected it. And then having done it, they could tell other people how to do it. And when you think of it, that's really an awesome idea. But no one seems at all interested in that. Hardly anywhere in the world. Isn't that intriguing? That the, really the idea of the key. This is such a phenomenal idea. I remember I gave a talk at the Maitre Institute in Honolulu about reincarnation. And uh, three unity ministers came and frantically took notes so they could use it in their next Sunday's sermon. And uh, so anyway, at the, so I went through the basic theory and so on. And then they were absolutely, I mean really, they were stunned when I said, so now are you ready to remember some past lives? Like, what an idea. Like, give us a theory. Give us a theory. Just go on and on and on and on. But, Wait a minute, confront us with a past life? Tr truly, truly, yes. I, I said, yes. Come on, let's, let's remember three lives at least. And so we went through the process. But it was such a, a shock, you see. Now, isn't that interesting? These were people that say, well, I don't go down to the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church where they just make you believe all that stuff that's said in the Bible. But they themselves were perfectly willing to believe dogmas like karma reincarnation and so on in their other worlds and so forth without any evidence, without any experience. So this I think is, this is one of the things that we never think of. We think of all the qualities a yogi ought to have, etc. But we forget that the basic quality has to be I want to know. Not know unless I want to experience. I want to go to that state of consciousness. So rather than saying, Oh, dear Lord Jesus, oh, wonderful Sri Ramakrishna, oh, great Buddha, to say, well, then why not me too? You know, why should I, why shouldn't I see this? Why should I read something they said and assume that's true? So this is, this is, this is perhaps the great glory of yoga and perhaps the very thing that uh, is the least interesting. Well, you saw that. How many people in City Yoga were interested in having any oh, divine knowledge? Oh, they wanted their Kundalini awakened. They wanted to see. 
They want experiences. But see, what they love to do is idolize the practice and not the goal of the practice. They love to idealize. In fact, this is the special super method that's been discovered by so-and-so and kept secret and now is revealed to you. This is one of the favorite things they like. So that the boast is about the guru and the boast is about how this is a super and a supreme best practice. But you find that, as a rule, they're very happy to be card-carrying members. Well, see, they do it in India a lot. They go, they find some guru, they learn something, and they never even apply it. So they can say, look at that great person whose photograph is on the wall. It's very intriguing. To get a person to want to wake up is one of the hardest things, hardest things imaginable. This is such an amazing idea. So he says the teachers... Of the science of yoga, therefore, declared the religion is not only based on the experience of ancient times, but that no man can be religious until he has the same perceptions himself. Hmm? The teachers of the science of yoga, therefore, declared that religion is not only based upon the experience of ancient times, but that no man can be religious until he has the same perceptions himself. In other words, you can't be a Christian until you're a Christ. Yeah, exactly. You you can't be... This is what real yagya is. Any, any moron can take ghee and pour it into a fire. But who can pour their life into infinite consciousness? Yeah, and, having the, and be transmuted by that fire. See, yeah, oh yeah, Sri Aurobindo talks about this a lot, what he calls the mystic fire. This idea that this is the transmutation. And that then you're not a, you're not a Vaishnava until you're a Krishna or a Rama or a Vishnu. You're not a Shaivite until you're a Shiva. Because what's Shiva going to do with a bunch of followers who say, oh, you're the most wonderful thing, you know, possible, etc.? If, if he was something cheap, huh? You're the most wonderful thing. Could you do this for me? Yes, exactly. Yes, especially, <laughs> by the way. And you are going to change. You are going to give me what I want, aren't you? So the, And then he says, yoga is a science which teaches us how to get these perceptions. So oftentimes people that are peddling yoga because they're afraid of the prejudices of people <clears throat> hearing them, they'll say, oh, yoga is not a religion. But in reality, yoga is the only religion. These other things are just systems of idea. And in many cases, frankly, they're superstition. And, and this, is the, this is the whole idea. Imagine, you see, to be able to say to a person, here's the key, you take it and you can learn it all on your own. This is amazing. For even, even in Eastern Christianity, in the... Uh, in the manuscripts about this, their system called Esekia, the silence, it says, sit in your room and this will teach you everything. And actually, when I lived in the Athenite monastery, we had people that was true. We had people who, after lots of meditation, we had six hours a day, uh, if asked a question about a subject, would say, you know, they give an answer. 
And then it would be found later on in the writings, maybe a few hundred years old of some really great wise Eastern Orthodox writer, the exact words. And they hadn't read them. In fact, uh, the uh, I, a Greek priest told me that when he was in the seminary in Thessalonica, in Eastern Greece, that once a year all of the students who were just studying the books would go down to Mount Athos, which is the great center for mystical Christianity. And that in uh, the monastery, the one monastery called Dionysio, that they would then spend about three to four hours with the librarian. And when they would ask the library, they'd meet in the library, and they would ask him all kinds of very difficult and subtle, obscure questions on this and that. And he would just point to a book and he'd say, in that book, Saint so-and-so says such and such and such. Long, sometimes he'd go on for a long time in quotation. And then it was discovered he couldn't read or write. Isn't that amazing? He had this city. In other words, he knew the contents of every book in the library and he couldn't read. So, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is this is true, truly an amazing idea. That it is so. In fact, they had, there was a man of Benares in the 20th century that people said, you know, he's attained enlightenment. Well, the pundits of Benares are always very jealous of their position. And so they decided to put him to the test. And he said, well, if you're enlightened, you know everything. So they brought him a bunch of material and they said, make us a pair of shoes. And he made him a pair of shoes. Perfect shoes. And they, they had him do these utterly external things, but he could do it all. Isn't that interesting? Like he, he, he knew how to do all kinds of technical things. Now, there were two people in America. One was a mathematician. He was one of the, the major mathematicians in America. In fact, he worked on the atom bomb for a while. And there one was a physicist. And they were absolutely at the top of their field, and they couldn't even talk with their colleagues because they were at the top. And truly, literally, they, they, they couldn't discuss what was in their mind and kind of what was going on. So... Once, every every one or two months, they would fly in. I mean, separately, not together. They would fly into L.A. and they'd go to SRF headquarters and they would talk with Yogananda for a few hours on their ideas or speculations, their researches. And he could talk with them absolutely one-to-one, -one, completely, all the technicalities and everything. And one of them said to him one time, you know, you must do a tremendous amount of study and a tremendous amount of reading in this field because just to keep up with, I'm constantly just having to, you know, spend hours cramming it all in. And Yogananda laughed and said, I haven't read half a dozen books within the last 30 years. And they were floored. But you see, he knew it all. There was an artist who told him. Hmm? If you look at his room, at the uh -huh. Yes, which people gave him, but he never read. He only <laughs> he, but see, he would touch a book and he'd know what was in it. But uh, 
there was an artist who challenged him and said, uh, don't tell me that yoga could make someone an artist. And he said, well, all right. Uh, you paint a picture and I'll paint a picture. And you come in a week and we'll see whose picture is the best. So Yogananda had some people just go and, you know, buy some canvas and some paints and so on and brought them to him. And unfortunately, no one knows what has happened to this picture. But he painted this supernatural picture of Krishna. And this artist, who was in the L.A. area, pretty well known, and considered, you know, so he had a swelled head. And he came back and he looked at it, and technique-wise in every way, it was far, far beyond anything he could do. And he was amazed. And he said, and this is what's the best, you see, he said to Yogananda, how did you do that? And he said, oh, it was easy. Krishna came, and I painted him. <laughs> so, you see, this this is the whole thing. This The idea that there's a whole world of real being that we can enter into and, and all of this manifests. So this is what's interesting. So I Brahman was talking about this. He said they were... There's a place... There, there's one of the places in Yoga Sutras, Patanjali says something really interesting. He says, Samadhi is to be found in every level of existence. Now we think samadhi, oh, you you know, you practice a lot of tapasya, then you attain samadhi, then you have all the super conscious experience, then in it you can attain enlightenment. But, he said, the fact is that samadhi, in the sense of that incredible unity of mind and intentness, even animals have it, when they really are right at something. Now, it doesn't reveal the self to them, but samadhi just means unity, it just means oneness. And so it's interesting, he says, samadhi is the property of every human being, even every animal. Isn't that interesting? From the lowest animal to the highest angel, sometime or other, each will have to come to that state, and then and then alone will real religion begin for him. This is important because, you see, again, we are so left-brained, we think that we attain it rather than it's revealed, than it's manifested. See? This is our pro Like, did Mozart study music and become a brilliant composer? That is ridiculous. He, the, his study only gave him the ability to express what was already there. It's like you can't go to art school. You can go to technique school. But you can't teach someone to be an artist. It's impossible. It comes from the it comes from the inside out. So he says, only then will real religion begin for him. Only then, until then, we only struggle towards that state. And this is what's really good. There's no difference now between us and those who have no religion, because we have no experience. Now this, of course, would be a terrible blow to the ego. You see, because I belong to the right group with the right ideas, and my salvation's assured. Too bad about you. See, when I was a little kid, they taught us to sing a song that said, One door. See, of course, Jesus says, You know, I'm the door. So. One door and only one. And yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? You get the attitude. See? So imagine they're teaching little children to have this, this, this way of seeing things right from the beginning. 
So, so then he says, and this will be the last, there are much higher states of existence beyond reasoning. It is really beyond the intellect that the first state of religious life is to be found, the first state. In other words, until a person transcends this plodding way of thinking it out and working it out, puzzling it out and saying, well, that's reasonable, therefore that must be true, until that's completely left behind. Even the first stage in real religion isn't there. So his real religion from the beginning is transcending all this. So it has to transcend books almost right away, doesn't it? Even if we do sing Gita. Uh, <laughs> this is really important. When you step beyond thought and intellect and all reasoning, then you've made the first step towards God. Yeah. But again, that's just there. So it's really, you're just taking... Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, so no, until you... Until you stop making noise, you can hear what's really going on. It doesn't even happen. So he says, that and what's really important, that is the beginning of life. What is commonly called life is but an embryo state. In other words, all the things we're doing and all the things we're accomplishing that yet don't at all result in the vision of that absolute truth. It isn't even life, it's death. This is what's very this is this is what's so incredibly valuable is that this is again the essence of what he's talking about, which is the sort of the wonder of yoga, is that a person is saying, like Papa Ramdas, he tells us what he went through, how he had all this upset, then how then how he learned, and then what he did. And he tells us everything he did and how he went about it. And he tells us the results and says, you do the same, you get the result. Even Agnes Sanford, I guess that needed me, but she was a great healer. She wrote a remarkable book called The Healing Light. She talks about how to heal people. You know, it didn't, She didn't say, oh, it's a gift from God. and Too bad. Too bad God likes me and not you. So, you know. But let me sell you my book about my experiences, you know. No. She, the, the book is a practical manual on how you work with healing, how you heal yourself, how you work with others. This is, the, the, this is, this is of course, is the essence of things. Agnes Sanford. The book's still in print. It's a wonderful book called The Healing Light. So anyway, this Vivekananda is talking about, so at least we got through that a little bit. What's really good is when he comes to the two components that all yoga has to have. That's one of his most interesting aspects. That, as I say, you don't yoga sutras doesn't really deal with it, but he see he was his fortune was this. He went wandering after the death of Sri Ramakrishna, and in a place called Gajapur, he heard there was a great yogi named Pavhari Baba, and this yogi lived in a in a, you know a kind of in a, in a house. Then interestingly enough, he had built, I read a description given by an Englishman, and of all things, he built a house that looked like an English countryside cottage. It wasn't an Indian house at all. And then he built a big wall around it. It had one door. And he only talked to people through the door. He didn't open the door. 
He taught to people through the door. And 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 Vivekananda went and learned yoga from him that way. And uh, so it's really from Pavhari Baba that he... Uh, he'd heard about Pavhari Baba because even when he was a Sri Ramakrishna, some people came to visit, more than one person came to visit Sri Ramakrishna who had encountered, I guess we could say, maybe they hadn't fully met Pavhari Baba. And... Uh, uh, he learned about him, so then he went to see him. Yeah. Okay, fine. Here, that's enough of that. Let's om and meditate. <laughs>